Barbara Mundy is professor of art history at Tulane University, where she holds the Martha and Donald Robertson Chair in Latin American Art. Her innovative scholarship, which considers zones of contact between native peoples and settler colonies as they forged new visual cultures in the Americas, has garnered a great deal of recognition, including the Latin American Studies Association Bryce Wood Award, the Eleanor Melville Prize for Latin American Environmental History from the Conference on Latin American History of the AHA, the American Historical Association. The Margaret Avery Foundation Award from the Association of Latin American Art. And as if all this weren't enough, the Latin American Studies Association Book Prize in Colonial Latin American Studies. <coughs> Understandably then, Professor Lundy was the 2021 to Kislat Chair at the Library of Congress and is the current president American Society for Ethno-History. She has had fellowships at the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., which in case you don't know, is a very, very big deal, and at the John Carter Brown Library. Before coming to Tulane, she was professor of art history at Fordham University in New York. Barbara Mundy is a force of nature. She is a good friend of rare book school. She is an exemplary member of the bibliosphere. We are deeply honored to have her among our number this evening as our soul and Marianne Malkin lecturer. Please join me in welcoming Thank you so much to the Rare Book School, to the Malkin family, and for that really lovely introduction. Um, I will admonish you again to come closer. I'll give you a second because these, uh, this is a very image-driven talk, and I noticed that the whole front row is empty. So please come up so you can see what I'm talking about. Before I launch into my talk tonight, I wanted to acknowledge that the University of Virginia stands on the unceded lands of the Mondacan Indian Nation and the, and the indigenous peoples who come before them. I pay respect to the traditional indigenous knowledge keepers, both past, present, and future. That acknowledgement is apropos because tonight, I'm transporting you to the center of another great indigenous empire that of the Aztecs, whose leadership was decapitated by Spanish conquistadors by 1521. They did not call themselves Aztecs, but Mexica, a term more commonly used in Mexico today, and I'll be using that term. This empire controlled a vast expanse, and in this map, 
where the area, the area in orange represents territories under Mexica control. And you can see that it had outposts as far south as modern-day Guatemala. Their capital city, um, which is now known as Mexico City, was once known as Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan was a large city with perhaps in about 1500, with perhaps about 150,000 people, making it smaller than contemporary Paris or Naples, but about twice the size of contemporary um, London, and it was maybe uh, six times the size of contemporary Rome. <laughs> As Mexicas were like urbanists, they could do it. And when we consider the cities around the lake shore, and what you're looking at here is a 1950s reconstruction of this island city, but it was surrounded by urban complexes on the lake shore, which aren't represented here. And when we look at the entire area, the whole basin that you're seeing here may have had over a quarter of a million people, putting it on a par with the largest European cities at the time. Now, the language that was spoken in this city and in the area around it was Nahuatl, an Amerindian language. It is not a dead language. There are over two million Nahuatl speakers in Mexico today. And uh, many of us, myself included, have devoted years of our lives to studying this language. Nahuatl inflects Mexican Spanish today, and it's crept into modern English. Consider these Nahuatl terms. Guacamole from Ajacamole. Avocado from avocado, and our favorite, chocolate from cacapato. The, the Mexica Empire that we've just seen map was the last autonomous empire of a long line of urban civilizations in an area that we call Mesoamerica. Later, scholars have identified shared characteristics of these great cultures. A maize and bean diet still found in Mexico today an observation of a 260-day calendar. Many of these cultures produced books. The one you see on the screen is the rarest of all rarities. It's one of the 14 known books that was created during the autonomous era before Amerindian contact with Europe. And for those of you book historians who are cringing at the thought of a very rare book and sat on its side, let me reassure you, this is the facsimile. Today, in a brief talk of maybe about 30 minutes, I wanted to introduce you to some of the books that were produced in and around Tenochtitlan, just around the time of the Spanish invasion of 1519-21, looking at their contents and materials. Now, the image on my post on the poster that introduced me showed one episode of the devastating programs of book burning, which has resulted in only 14 surviving books. Um, and these particularly um, particularly targeted were sacred books. In this image, we see two Franciscans at the bottom left and right, and they are holding lit torches. The bonfire that they have, um, that rises between them, is full of the masks and the costumes of sacred, um, of priests who would transform themselves thus into sacred entities. Soon to be put on this bonfire um, is something we see at the, at the lower right, where two acolytes of the Franciscans, probably indigenous youths themselves, hold um, what I think are closed volumes of screenfold books. Um, those will be next in the flame. This, though, this image, though, has created a, a, a kind of a trope of indigenous disappearance. And today in my talk, I'm really going to push against that trope 
because I'm going to look at the ways that Nahuatl-speaking artists and writers adopted many of the new technologies sent over by Europeans, alphabetic writing, European papers and ink, and new binding structures. These adoptions show that the book tradition was never static, but flexible and responsive to new conditions. So my talk has three sections. The first is on the books of the autonomous era before the contact with Europe. The second will look at the um, adoptions and ad adaptations that indigenous writers made after the arrival of books to New Spain, which is modern New Mexico. And third, I'm gonna share some recent research I've been doing on the meanings of the materials of these hybrid books. The earliest books to survive from Mesoamerica are those from the Maya region to the south, and there are four of these known. Radiocarbon dating of this corpus dates to the, the, them to the 11th and 12th century, but there's evidence uh, that books were around much earlier as they are often depicted in paintings, both on walls and on ceramics. Maya books like this one are long with thin vertical pages. Although they're often called codices, they are in truth screenfuls. They can be extended to great lengths and could be painted on both front and back. Their substrates of the Maya in the Maya region are paper made from a native species of the ficus tree. For paper conservatives, um, this would be described as bark cloth, and I'll go into its, its facture. This was coated with a burnished gesso and then painted using a very standardized and limited palette. The most important element was the black line, and it was used to outline the images as well as to create the hieroglyphic texts that were unique to the Maya. In central Mexico, where we'll be spending most of the, our time today, um, books were also screenfuls, and they also deployed images, but there were crucial differences between them and their Maya cousins. They could be made either of a mottled paper, that paper from the ficus, as the one on the left, or gesso deer hide as the one on the right. And they tend to be square or slightly horizontal rather than vertical. They used only images and pictographs, not hieroglyphic texts. Their content was varied. The two on the screen are, the, are, are, calendars, are, are calendars of this special 260-day sacred calendar used across Mesoamerica. And the competent reader, probably a ritual specialist, could pro prognosticate from these two calendars to determine the proper ritual activity for any day. Books and manuscripts were created in Tenochtitlan, that capital city of the Mexica, and they were often connected to the management of the great Mexica empire. The city of Tenochtitlan, which is the, often the focus of my own research, received vast quantities of tribute from regions it had conquered, and imperial administrators kept lists of what was due. One such list you'll see on the screen. This page of a manuscript, which is held in Mexico, shows the tribute demanded from one of the subject provinces. The page, interestingly, is dominated by regalia for, for warriors, often made out of feathers, um, in the top half, and then there's woven textiles on the bottom. But it also includes large quantities for paper. 
This is represented by a white a rectangle tied at top, probably a bound stack. The elaborate handbag-like element beneath it is actually a symbol for a number. It's a shikipini, meaning 8,000. At least some of the paper was no doubt used for manuscripts and books, like the one you see on the screen. While the empire used manuscripts and books to record its bureaucratic processes, equally important was the recording of history. And in many cases, annals were set along long strips of paper called tiras. This one, the tira de Tepeshpan, is fairly typical. It's a long strip of amato paper covered with gessos upon which figures are set. The central spine that you see, these are circular elements painted green and yellow, each representing a year. So we're looking at the events of 17 years um, across the page. On it, the community of Tepeshpan recorded its events in the top register. You'll see, for instance, the bundled corpse of the king at the upper left, followed by his successor to show a change of rule. Ever mindful of what was happening in the imperial center, the historians of Tepeshpan set their history in relation to events that were happening in Tenochtitlan, and that's what you see on the bottom register. Within Tenochtitlan, the Mexica also created books to record their own history. And like many empires, it was a standardized official history by the beginning of the 16th century. This history held that the Mexica once lived in, another, in an earlier island city, this one called Aztlan. Sometime in the middle of the 12th century, their tribal deity, Huitzilopochtli, called them out to leave Aztlan and thus they would begin a 200-year odyssey, which would end in the 14th century with their arrival to the basin of, Me of Mexico and the foundation of Tenochtitlan. In this work, called the Tierra de la Peregrinación, we can see how the artist has used this concise language of pictography to narrate a history. On the left, we can see somebody um, on a boat leaving the island, the original Aztlan, and he's traveling towards a curved, a shape that's a curved hill. Inside it, um, there's a little figure with a hummingbird headdress, and that's Huitzilopochtli. The candy-like cane um, uh, objects that are coming out are actually speech scrolls to convey that Huitzilopochtli is either singing or calling out to his followers. On the next page, you can see how they set out. They've got bundles in their backs, and they're beginning their 200-year trek towards the, their, their eventual foundation of Tenochtitlan. So this powerful narrative um, had, had, had amazing hold on the imaginations of generations of Mexica because it established the Mexica's divinely sanctioned exodus from Aztlan and their centuries later possession of a similar island in the lake that we know as Tenochtitlan. And I should note it has an equally powerful hold on many Chicano and Latinx people in the United States today who can trace their origins back to Aztlan. This narrative was told again and again by the Mexica. Now, the entry um, of the Spanish conquistadors and the toppling of the Mexica political state in 1519 to 21 had many devastating consequences. But the telling of history and the making of books to keep history 
still continued. Here, we see the tiny Codex Alban, and the history of migration has entered true Codex form. The opening image, something like a frontispiece, is the beginning of the journey, and a solitary figure on an island surrounded by water gestures to the right, off the page, and off the island. The same story, here it is. The same story is told in another codex, the Codex Azcatitlan, which was also um, once a tira, but is now bound as a book. There are more figures that you can see on the island on the left with the big hill in the middle, painted kind of golden, um, surrounded by the lake. Those are those um, circular forms. They, they would, would have once appeared blue, but that water, that color is faded. Um, but you can also see the, the lone um, man in the canoe who's heading out, beginning the great exodus. There are more figures in this, um, but the island surrounded by the lake, the speaking deity, the exodus with, canae, with the canoe, all of these convey the essential filaments of the narrative. So I wanted you to understand that each of these three books begins with Aztlan, but each also tells the, the narrative of Mexica history in a slightly different way. Here I'm showing the span that they cover. The Tierra de la Peregrinación tells the history only up to about 1336, even before the foundation of Tenochtitlan. The Azcatitlan's narrative ends after the Spanish invasion. But the Alabama covers um, the years up to 1608, and it offers an annals of the events that transpired in Mexico City long after the invasion. Part two. Of these three narratives of Mexica history, the Codex Albin offers the best window into the adoption of new technologies. It was not a tira or a screenfold, but a bound codex. The pages are covered with alphabetic writing and use pictography sparingly. This departure from earlier indigenous books shows how the creator had, I think, pridefully mastered the new technology of alphabetic writing. The practiced hand of the writer that we see on the page was no doubt taught with, um, within Franciscan friaries, the Jesuits hadn't erupted, where schools were set up for indigenous peoples. Now, in Europe, across the 16th century, during the time that the Codex Albin's creators lived, mastery of script was a new sign of gentlemanly status. The advent of books like this one to teach proper calligraphy allowed entrepreneurial masters of penmanship like Hugo de Carpi to reach new audiences. While we have no surviving examples of handwriting books from 16th century New Spain, there's enough evidence in other media to suggest that they circulated and were well known in Mexico as well. The arrival of a printing press to Mexico City, as Tenochtitlan would come to be known, was as early as 1539. That is, it occurred some 20 years after the invasion and some 18 years after the fall of Mexica monarchs. Printed books offered an additional vehicle for alphabetic literacy among indigenous artists and bookmakers. This is one of the earliest books printed in Mexico 
And it's a trilingual catechism in Spanish, Latin, and Nahuatl. At the top of the page, it borrows from the example of primers, setting out the sounds of the letters before offering a translation from the Latin to Nahuatl. Printing projects like this one meant that in Mexico City, a growing number of elite Nahuatl speakers may have served as printing assistants, proofing sheets, and yielding what I think of as a kind of a core of intensified literacy in the city. I'm often struck when I look at 16th century printed books, and maybe you are as well, um, how this manuscript tradition is never very far away. Here, for instance, the book user at the bottom turned it into a flexible manuscript by adding another text in Nahuatl, this about Jesus Christ, below the main one. The Codex Aubin, that codex that begins with the exodus from Aztlan, shows us that creators were looking closely at European manuscripts. The blue frame that guides the text is not from an indigenous tradition, but rather something that the creators probably encountered in manuscript books that they knew. The paper is European, but many of the pigments, particularly the bright blue, known as Maya blue, and the red, derived from cochineal, is likewise part of the indigenous tradition. Although there's been no testing of the ink, I suspect that the inks of this first part of the manuscript, or some of them, were carbon-based, again, a traditional indigenous material, whereas in later parts of the manuscript, new iron gall inks were clearly deployed. As I mentioned, the Annals of the Codex Aubin runs to 1608, and its pages record events in Mexico City as experienced by the large population, the majority population of, Mexico, of, um, of Mexica who lived in, in the city. The flexibility of this manuscript tradition is paralleled by Mexica awareness and openness to global events. This page, for instance, documents the events of 1581. It includes a novel text right here. It reads, Inix Castoi Junio, Ojalami Amati Inik, Uniki, Onimike, Tlatoke Castilla Rey, Inamik Ihuanican Visore, Inamik in Pampa, Nazawalok. The text is conjoined with an image showing us a, short, uh, a carefully shrouded corpse attached to an open page with writing on it. What the, writer, what the artist is showing us here, there's the, what the artist is actually showing us is a cedula, that is a royal directive. This one issued by King Philip II of Spain, ordering mourning upon the death of his queen. That queen, pictured here by Sophonisba who was solo during her life, is in the Codex Aubin version shown as a shrouded corpse. Thus, these artists and publics were well aware of their position within a larger global empire, quite different from the indigenous empires of their grandparents. Before, I showed that all um, three of these manuscripts that we've been looking at begin with the exodus from Aztlan, and they cover anywhere from 200 years to over 400. 
the Alban absorbs the most, most of the European conventions. But when we look at the dates that they were created, um, something very strange emerges, a contradiction. The heavily pictographic Azcatitlan is created long after the others, during a moment when native communities were very much part of the global world. Yet it returns to a very conservative language of pictography. The choices of these artists for the, the Azcatitlan, the latest yet the most conservative, most heavily dependent on pictography, the, the one that most um, frequently rejects the use of alphabetic writing, um, tells us of the continuing importance of the, the, the tradition of pictography within Mexico across centuries. Um, the Azcatitlan, in its traditional use of iconography, its avoidance of alphabetic writing, seems to have been made and created for native elites for whom old manuscripts or old style manuscripts were important to bolster their own authority within their communities. This history, in other words, mattered deeply to them. And here's the page from the Azcatitlan. Again, it's a 17th century manuscript. It's quite, quite late. Part, I want to close by talking about another manuscript, this one that shows the imbrication of indigenous books in the European tradition, um, but also the subtle forms of resistance that can be found in a close reading of the book. This is a book now held by the Newberry Library, and it's sermons written in Nahuatl, the, um, and it was brought by, to my attention by the Nahuatl scholar Ben Lemming. It's important because its creation was overseen by Bernardino de Sahagún, the great Franciscan who organized the creation of a book called the Florentine Codex, which is an encyclopedia of Mexica life. It's probably the most important book to come out of New Spain in the 16th century. The manuscript in front of you, I'll call the Sermonario. The Sermonario was reworked, but it seems to have been largely set down in the 1540s with a final redaction in 1563. Its content shows us some of the complexities of cultural contact and accommodation. The book contains sermons um, written, created in order to impose Catholic doctrine on indigenous peoples. But these were mostly, uh, these were no, mostly like, most likely not authored by the Franciscan Sahagun himself, but co-authored with um, a group of highly trained Nahua-speaking intellectuals. They worked with Francis. They worked. Oops. Ah, sorry. They worked within a Franciscan friary um, in a part of Mexico City, and collaborated with Sahagun in the production of the work. These native Nahuatl speakers were often trilingual, having learned Spanish, and their Latin was so good that they taught other friars. They taught friars themselves. Their presence on the page is marked by the beautiful penmanship, um, which is not that of Sahagun's hand, but those of one or a few of his collaborators, whose names we do not always know, as in the case of this manuscript. Now, in creating 
um, their bound codex. The Nahuatl co-authors drew on the classic format of medieval codex. That is, they, they used four bifolios of paper sewn together in gatherings of eight. They almost certainly encountered this format among the many manuscripts that were in the Friary Library, along with printed books. And I should note that the Virginia holds a really beautiful copy of a Spanish Nahuatl vocabulario by another Franciscan, Antonio de Molino, um, that these Nahuatl co-authors of this manuscript would have, would have had, had a hand on. And that's in the rare book um, collection here. When my colleague Ben Lemming introduced me to this manuscript last spring, I was speechless. Not because of its content, as there are many Sant'Munanios written in Nahuatl, many of them books like this one. I was speechless because of the paper. Largely unremarked and unseen by contemporary scholars is the fact that the Newberry manuscript was written on native paper, probably made from the Amato or ficus tree. It is, I went to see it in, Jan, in last July, it is some of the most beautiful Amato paper I have ever seen, and I've looked at a lot of Amato paper. Its surface has some water damage that you can see here, but it's beautifully fabricated, light-colored, and all of the folios seem to have a very even kind of surface or sizing on them. As a result, the ink applied to them doesn't bleed into the sheets, and the letter forms maintain their studied perfection. But the paper has elicited almost no comment, perhaps because it is so unobtrusive. It's almost as if one of the goals of the paper maker was to perform a disappearing act. It's because of this act of self-effacement that these sheets of native paper have been allowed to slip into the historical archive as a neutral inscriptional surface. Now, Amatl is rarely found in bound codex form. Instead, codices like the Tierra de la Peregrinación, which we've looked at, um, deployed in a long tira format, taking advantage of the fibrous paper's propensity for um, expansion. It's very um, straightforward to adhere sheets of a model paper, pound seed to make a strong join. In the existing archive, I've encountered it as single sheets, but I don't know of another collation of a model paper as large as that of the San Bernardino. Within the worldview of the Nawa, a model paper was a sacred substance, and I'm happy to talk more about this in the question period. Um, but briefly, it was conceived of as a kind of skin. Now, we don't think about skin very much because we think of all of our important things happening inside of our bodies. We pay a lot of attention to our internal organs, the beatings of our heart, the conceptions of our brain. Um, we lose sight that, that skin is actually our lar largest organ. And for native peoples, skin is actually the, the place where real things happen. I can tell you're sick because you're pale. Your skin turns color. I can tell you have a fever because your skin turns hot. So the skin is really kind of essential to the being. Um, and again, this is this this is different from our kind of interior exterior um, notion of the body that we have in the West. 
Now, its identity for, as a skin, the, the identity of paper as a skin, came from its facture. Um, native paper is commonly derived from this amatl tree. You see it on the slide here, one of these many varieties of ficus. It undergoes very little processing, unlike European paper. I had the good fortune and honor to accompany my friend and colleague, Lidia Gar uh, Gomez Garcia, to San Miguelita Pahuatlan to see the contemporary processes of papermaking. Um, these have also been the focus of really extraordinary research carried out by Allen and Pamela Sandstrom, among others. As seen here, the tree is stripped of its bark, both outer and inner, um, and in Nahuatl, the word for this is, is, is flame, just like the flame of a, of a skin. Um, then the hard outer bark is carefully removed. The inner bark is leached in water, probably to remove some of the naturally occurring latex. The results are those clumps of fibers that you can see at the right of the papermaker's workboard. And they were basically aligned in, in a grid place. Um, and then to turn them into the, this um, thin and flexible material, the papermaker um, lays them out and then, um, and then beats them to an even thinness. This ancient, um, the, the, this was an ancient technique is attested to by the ubiquitous presence of paper beaters in archeological sites across Mesoamerica, often in households. So it seems to have been a household activity when the, in, in places where the ficus was available. On the many sheets of um, native paper, um, this process is quite apparent to the naked eye. When we looked, for instance, at Sagunsek Munadio under backlight, we could see the grid structure of the fibers. So in other words, labor is always present in these. In now religious thought, skin and the taking on of skin enabled one to transform oneself into a sacred being. The Codex Borbonicus, one of the great screenfuls that preserves knowledge of the priests, says as much. In one of the, the images from its pages, we see a, a ritual specialist who's been carefully dressed in order to become the embodiment of a deity. Many, most of this costume that enables this becoming of the deity is made out of amatl paper. Lightweight and amenable to carrying bright pigments, paper adornments could transform the priest into a larger-than-life and chromatically brilliant figure. This figure wears the, I'll show you, this is the figure's face right there, um, and he wears an amakali, literally a paper house on the head, an adornment that takes advantage of paper's ability to be folded and twisted and draped. It's adorned here with, with folded rosettes. Most visually impressive are the long colored streamers that descend from the headdress. And here, paper's lightweight nature allows the priest to sustain the frame that surrounds him. And wearing this new skin of paper, he became the manifestation of the maize deity. So when members of Sahagun's team selected to choose native paper to set down the words of Sanguinadio, their choice was not a neutral one, nor was the material they selected free of significance. It's not that native paper was their only, was, was their only option. Um, every other manuscript of the Sahagun corpus, many co composed around the same time, 
were all written and drawn on paper imported from Europe, including the Florentine Codex. Indeed, the, con the context of the entire volume reveals something of paper scarcity, especially paper of this quality. Now, the manuscript in its current form numbers 196 pages, or 98 folios. These folios, in turn, are each composed of a folded sheet or bifolio, which means the scribes use 49, at least 49, large sheets. I should emphasize at least 49, because chunks of the back end of the manuscript are missing. The last gathering isn't even bound onto the binding anymore. And here you're seeing Leif Calicote, a conservator at the Newberry, and she's actually just kind of slid that last choir out, because it's not, it's not, it's not um, caught by the binding. In front of her, captured in the photograph, again, I, you probably can tell me what this is. She's making, she's, she's diagramming the, the structure of the, of the manuscript. Now, it's the back end of this manuscript that's very interesting and revealing, because as one leaves through the manuscript, there are more and more incidents of pages that were slightly smaller than earlier ones in the volume, as if the creators selected the largest and most perfect sheets for the initial choirs or gatherings, and then had to draw on less choice material for the back of the book. This shows us how much the material of the book mattered and how moving beyond surface inscription, where most attention of scholars has been directed, gives us an entirely new understanding of this book. So in this brief talk, I've given you a little window into the world of bicultural indigenous books. Rather than doomed by cultural contact and the introduction of European manuscripts in the printed press, the indigenous book tradition in Mexico was never static, but flexible, responsive to new conditions. And most important is the way that traditional materials, deeply meaningful to indigenous publics, continue to signify despite, or perhaps because, of their inscriptional surfaces. Thank you very much. question, the earliest recorded date. I was in a conservation lab in Mexico City, and one of the great conservators of, um, of, of Mexico, Mari Vandish, she said, oh, you're interested, and we were looking at paper, she said, oh, let me show you this, and she took out one of those little Kodak film canisters, remember those? She brings it out, she opens it up, and she says, this is from a, a burial up in um, in the, in the northern region where it's very dry. And she, she puts out on the table this tiny little scrap of paper. 
The, the grave has been dated to the beginning of the, of the first, um, well, the beginning of the first millennia um, common era. So that's over 2,000 years old. But what's really interesting about that piece of paper is that, and she said, look at it, wow, um, is it was not used for an inscriptional surface, it was folded. And she thinks it was probably part of some kind of um, costume that was being interred in the, in, the, um, in the grave. So we have you know, physical evidence of a model paper from at least 2,000 years ago. So it's much earlier, in fact, than, than paper. I mean, paper doesn't arrive until in Europe until 900. It's, it's, I think it predates European the arrival of paper in Europe by about 1,000 years. Has it been analyzed to see what it actually is composed of? Um, yeah, I think it's. I think she's done the analysis, and it's a model. Yeah, which is the standard. It's a standard. It's a ficus. It's hard to tell what kind of um, of ficus it is, but it's it's a it's a ficus also. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hi. Right, so thank you so much for that uh, wonderful talk. Um, have a to comment and then a question. Mm -hmm. um, so just as a comment, just that you know we're learning today about you know bibliographic description and you know sort of retracing the presence of humans, human actors, right, mm -hmm. on the page. Mm -hmm. And this is just a wonderful uh, way of thinking through that for me. Um, it connects very much to also the, the field that I have been involved in, because in this case you have you know the, the, the kind of mestizo artifact that is created. Right, as a result of that, you know, contact accommodation, you know, and all of what we discussed is, you know, to read to, to read human presence, you know, in these particular books is to essentially open up this this window into the conquest and what happens, right? The accommodation process. And so anyway, so here's, here's my question: is you know, we, we happen to be very lucky at the university, small liberal arts college. Um, in Fredericksburg, but we do have a copy of Molina's Vocabulary. Yes. Yeah, so it's really neat. And what I'm going to do with it is a kind of um, a, a description for the video. So I wonder if you could help me to start thinking about how to recuperate the, 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 the presence of the, you know, the, the indigenous uh, informers and the, you know, the other priests that were involved. Because it's a dictionary, yeah. it's a collaborative enterprise, obviously, but it's how do I start to crack the code into so I mentioned the Florentine Codes as being the great encyclopedia of Mexica life. Our other great guide to the world of the Mexica is the volume you've just mentioned, which is Alonso de Molino's Great Vocabulario, where he took Nebrija's word list in the, in the first part as a basis for um, one of the great um, dictionaries. And what's two ways into that. Number one, if you start the, the Spanish word list, the way from this, sorry, the Spanish to the Nahuatl is pretty impoverished. That's very limited. But when you get to the part where he's doing the, the Nahuatl analysis, wait, sorry, I'm, I'm reversing it. Um, when you get to the elaboration of Nahuatl terms, there you can find an amazing window into both the grammar and a worldview. So when I was 
looking at some of these, for instance, thinking about the, the idea of the tree as a skin, I went immediately to Munguza Cabulario, and I could see that all the words, the words for flame, were also the words that were used for creating paper. So the evidence for these kind of worldviews is tucked into the language. Second point, learn Nahuatl. <laughs> there are wonderful online classes. Um, there's a school in Zacatecas that offers, they offer short term in January, but when you're on break, they offer summer classes. Um, and I, I am a, a perennial student of the Nahuatl language, and I simply take a class every semester. So that's available. And I think when you start understanding, getting closer to this world from the, through the language, it's transformative. And humbling, and deeply humbling. <laughs> because you understand how little you really know. Yeah? Um, so my question is kind of uh, like, um, based on the like, comparison uh, between the like another another indigenous group, but mm -hmm. a totally different part of the world, and their pictographic group, mm -hmm. and also how it relates to the writing process mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. that they're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, so that, that I'm talking about is the Nashi people of like uh, Northwest Yunnan, China, mm -hmm. and they have a pictographic script that's like still living to some capacity in these religious contexts. I call the Dongba script, and they the indigenous like people of that that, that part of China. Have like uh, the papering processes um, that's very obviously like like, a, like idiosyncratic against mm -hmm. that region mm -hmm. based on like the roots that are available and like the property that is available that's like the most like awe-inspiring properties. It's like pretty water. Uh, it, it like it's less it's less susceptible to water damage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you could just maybe like kind of talk about other like the more a little bit more going a bit more depth. to get out all the gunk in it. But I think that the um, when you're when you're leaching out the the lingons and the latex, um, the fiber then, as I understand it, becomes more pliable and more amenable to being put together in a different way. Um, and what's really interesting too about the the amatl is that it's one of the two the two materials used for manuscripts. The other is, of course, deer hide. Deer hide results in the killing of the deer. A model, we have 16th century accounts of making paper, and it's very clear that paper makers lopped off a branch, a lower branch of the tree that was thick enough, but not so big that it would kill the tree. And they talk about the tree's ability to regenerate. So I think one of the conceptual ideas in paper is that it's this kind of a living thing. Um, but more to the, to the Amato paper today, it looks almost like, um, it, 
again, conservatives call it bark cloth because it's, it's made with such a non-invasive, um, using non-invasive technologies like bark cloth. Um, and, it, and it's like, it's kind of like, like a heavy paper towel. It's very flexible. But when I encounter a model of paper, I have, very rarely have I seen sustained insect damage. And I actually think that the, one of the reasons it's so lightly processed is there's probably enough stuff in the, um, that they're leaving in the material that there's probably natural insecticides in there. And I would love to get together with like a, a bug person to, to test this out. Um, but, but I think that people are, they're very aware of the need to um, sustain the forest by not killing the trees by making paper. And I think they're also very aware of um, the, the, the ability of that paper to, to resist you know, intrusions from index. And finally, when we look at manuscripts today, they've got this incredibly beautiful pigment on it. Um, so they're also, they're also very aware of the particular properties and lack of interaction between the, the kind of pigment bases they're using and the paper itself. The paper is not interacting or burning or you know, leaching acid into the pigments. So that's another thing that they seem to be quite aware of in the creation of these, of these manuscripts. Yes, go ahead. That leads on to the question. Is there any evidence that they ever experimented with any other kind of papers? Yes, um, th thank you for that. Then, as I mentioned, they used deer hide for really sacred manuscripts. The other kind of paper, which is super, super rare, we only have six manuscripts known of it, is made out of the maguey, also used to make tequila and mezcal. Um, and there, that is made in very similar ways. You take the penka, you um, wash it out, you, you pound it down, um, and then you lay it out in the sun to dry. And there seems to be kind of natural gunk in the agave that um, you know holds the paper together. I've actually, the, when I was at the Library of Congress, there's a really extraordinary manuscript there that's on um, four sheets are a monocle and four sheets are maguey. And, um, my conservator friends can actually see it, I can't see it, but they describe Maguey as having a slightly more luminous surface. It's a little harder, it's a little more luminous, um, and so it interacts with paint in a slightly different way, but again, you know, I'm an, I'm an art historian, I should be able to see this, but I can't, I couldn't, if you put two sheets in front of me, I could not tell you the difference between a monocle and a Maguey. Not even in healing, it's very, um, they're very similar. To follow up though on, on your question, I, I shall also say that in starting this, this research, and actually when I was confronted with this Ahadid manuscript, I had taken a real book school class, and so I really felt confident about approaching this material. So it was really rare book school that gave me this like this ability in a way to like go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the book people. <laughs> um, because, of course, I have a political interest in all of that, this, and this is to insist that there is an indigenous bookmaking tradition um, and that we can't discount it and we've got to look hard to find what it's about. But my training here, again, gave me the kind of like vocabulary and competence to enter into that. Yeah, go ahead. 
Hello, sorry, um, two questions that are pretty much related. The first is, um, what were the writing slash drawing elements used in the pre-contact um, manuscript creation? Um, and with respect to the, once printing was introduced, mm -hmm. um, what cities, locales, et cetera, um, in where there would be modern-day Mexico, um, what was the printing based out? Um, because I, I don't understand have any knowledge of the history of printing in Mexico. Yeah, so um, the, the ink seems to have been laid on with a reed pen, um, and I think some of the paint is, is laid on with a rabbit fur brush. The ink itself, when you see it, it's carbon-based, pure carbon, it has, and it has a, um, it's mixed with a, a binder. And the, the word that's often associated with ink is ortli in Nahuatl, which means road. And when you look at ink, if you do like a topographic reading of the manuscript page, the ink almost like stands up on the surface. It's very, it's almost three-dimensional in it. It's sculptural, as is the paper. Um, and I think that the, you know, these are amazingly trained artists that they can use a tiny reed pen to control the line that the way they do. And of course they know the paper and they know the, the pigment. Um, and this is part of this kind of deep technological base. Um, the printing press arrives in 15, we think some of the earliest dated stuff um, is 1539. It's brought over by, at the behest of the Franciscan bishop because he wants to print these sermonarios and catechisms. And they print them by the, it seems, in the hundreds, the runs are, the, the press runs are probably hundreds or maybe even thousands of the, of the catechisms. And that's because they're trying to get these printed works in the hands of indigenous, um, of trained indigenous, probably they're called fiscales, who are um, indigenous men, mostly men, perhaps sometimes women, who are then charged with evangelization in communities. So they make this huge effort to get this, this stuff printed. Um, I'm really interested, actually, and very little work has been done. The, the press clearly doesn't have enough to do, because in 1540 you start seeing blanks made for notaries coming off the printing press. Um, and so the press itself is trying to be entrepreneurial, and there's always this, this press by, um, owned by a man named Juan Pablos. In the historiography, Juan Pablos gets all the attention, but there's no way he could have created like the Molina book without scores. He didn't speak Nahuatl. <laughs> and if any of you have proved anything, you, you need a native speaker in the room. So there were probably scores of native peoples who were involved in the production of these books. Again, we don't have their names, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, so for me, it's really interesting to think about how these books could have been made with cadres of indigenous intellectuals um, as a way of kind of bringing them back into the historiographic record. One publisher owns this 
printing press, he dies, it goes to his widow, his widow marries somebody else, and that printing press um, is one of the few in Mexico City until the end of the 16th century. And then by the 17th century, you start getting another one in Puebla. But there are very few, the press again, it's the Spanish Empire, so printing is heavily censored and heavily controlled. And the and Spaniards are not, are not interested in the kind of free market of the press like we might see in Germany's um, or the low countries. So there are very few, um, and again, we know almost very little about, we know about the books they're printing, but very little about all the other stuff that they probably were printing as well. Thank you. How great to have this master class so <laughs> pedagogically adept and beautifully organized, and yes, the visuals were stunning, so thank you very much. We can continue the conversation Two floors down at the reception in our mountain lecture, Barbara um, Before we do that, I'd like to give you a little memento oh, of your time, oh, oh, your lecture you. poster that you should um, display in your office <laughs> and send all your students to Rare Book School.